In a few months, the world has rapidly changed. And we have an opportunity to use this moment to reimagine the world we live in forever. Powering transformation through bold thinking, big ideas, and brave action. This is Project Reset. Hello there, I'm Rick Edwards, and today we're going to talk about something very close to my heart, which is sport. Uh, COVID-19 has disrupted the global sporting landscape in a way that we haven't seen since World War II. Uh, I'm wondering if, for all the challenges, uh, this might prove to be the great reset that the, the global sport economy needs. Uh, I'll be asking what the, what the future of sport looks like for professionals and amateurs alike, for uh, fans at home and, and crowds in stadiums. Uh, I'm joined by a terrific panel of four today, all absolutely uh, invested in sport, but coming at it from quite different angles. Let's start with, with the, the question that I really want uh, answering, which is, um, it's quite a big one. Why, why is sport so important to us? And what I mean by that is, why has there been such a gaping hole in my life uh, during lockdown? A a anyone? Mick, tell me, what is it? No, I just think it's, it's what brings everybody together. It's like the social glue. Um, when we cancelled Wimbledon, it was like a bereavement. I think you know, we were getting feedback on our social media that you know, this was part of people's lives. They, you know, they were missing it from their kind of summer, summer viewing. And, I, and I, I just think it's that classic case when it goes missing, you, you kind of realise how much you need it and how much you want it. Andrew, what makes us uh, need sport in our lives so much? Well, I think... The weirdest one for me as we went into lockdown at home was that my life was really quite regulated by live sport, is that it was probably the only thing that was fixed in my life, is that, you know, when we did everything else in our lives, but suddenly, you, you know, we all had a basically a completely clear diary and day. You could do whatever you wanted at whatever time because there weren't those moments of saying, oh, there's that game on at four o'clock or oh, I've got to watch that at, at that. What time is that starting? That's at six. So you just suddenly got this complete flexibility. I think the other side of it was that the actual participation in sport is such a huge part of our lives. And in the UK, we were very fortunate in that we were still able to go out and ride our bikes and do all the rest of it. But the, you know, if you people in, like in Spain who were in lockdown, who weren't able to go out and do their physical exercise, I think that was hugely uh, debilitating. And the mental health side of that, I think was really bad. So I think a lot of us missed it superficially, yes, because we all know as Jürgen Klopp or whoever said it the other day, it's the most important, unimportant thing in our lives. It's, it's, it's actually completely relevant, but it is absolutely critical and fundamental. And if you take it away, there's a big gap. Were you left with a pretty big gap, Alex? Yeah, on both fronts, because mm. obviously I have that side that I work in it, but also been playing my whole life. But like Andrew and Mick was just saying, it is that it's, the ability for sport to bring people together, whether that's if you are playing, participating as an athlete, 
whether you follow a team, you've been brought up, your family, your dad, your mum supported that team, so you follow that team. It becomes people's routine in their every single day lives. And actually, it's a conversation starter as well. The amount of conversations that you have around whether your team's played, the debates on players, whether that's the right start in 11 or across all different kind of sports. So I think that's the thing that was taken away. And it was, okay, having to try and find something different, like Andrew was saying, in your routine. I've got to ask just because I feel like um, amongst me and, uh, and my friends, this is quite divisive. And I feel it gives you a, a measure of people. Uh, in, in turn, are you uh, piped in manufactured crowd sound watchers or natural sound watchers? So I, I'll, I'll start and say, I really like the artificial crowd sounds. Alex, which do you prefer? <laughs> So I think that's hard for me to answer because I'm used to both knowing mm. the coaching elements and what players are saying to each other on the field. So I'm used to that from being in mm. that environment. So I think for me, I can switch between the two. If I want to switch off from the tactics and just watch it as a fan, or actually am I still analysing as a player or kind of like that manager kind of role? So as a, as a fan... I just sat on the you, fence, didn't I? I'm yeah, sorry. You, I mean, massively, <laughs> massively. It's a bad start for you, Alex. That's not what I want at all. <laughs> So you're, you're divided, fine. Uh, Mick? Um, I, I like the natural. Um, on an ongoing basis, you very rarely hear kind of a referee speaking or the players barking instructions. So, I, yeah, I kind of find it interesting just hearing what they're saying and throwing tactics out or bossing somebody around. You, you do get to hear some choice phrases that you wouldn't oh, normally yeah. get to hear, which is, which is very nice. Uh, Andrew? Well, I'm old enough to remember and even work when we used to edit programs on tape and two-inch tape, and you actually needed a razor blade and sticky tape. But in those days, they used to cheat the sound all those years ago because it was so complicated that the BBC engineers used to have a loop and they could just keep it going. So we've had artificial sound before. Um, I have to say I listened to it with the artificial sound. Uh, Ricardo? Well, I think that artificial sound is a new horizon that in the future we will couple well with the natural one. Mm. Uh, even better than before. But uh, I'm pretty intrigued to see that uh, you know, artificial sound that can be uh, bringing excitement, uh, can, can, give, uh, can, boost, can boost also whatever are uh, comments, uh, things, uh, how you, you really start to, to do a little bit more like an entertaining program. Well, what about for the players, though, though Alex? It must have been weird coming back to, to empty stadiums. And I know that games have been played behind closed doors and, and so on in, in, in football. But this must have been a strange experience. It was interesting because I've been sitting on the government task force about bringing sport back. And one of the things that I did said when uh, Troy Deeney and um, Danny Rose, when they were the first players to come out and say, well, we actually don't feel ready. Mm. I think it was actually taking a step back and for people to realise we're human beings too. Sometimes you have to remove the football and the footballer aspect and be like, well, players have emotions just as anyone else would. They have concerns. So that's the same as re-entering any workplace for anybody. And then I think in terms of getting used to the fans not being there, when I look back, just having got back from the Champions League uh, final, I actually, watching the players, their excitement, the effort put in, yes, obviously the Champions League final is at stake, you're going to play for that. 
But I think it showed a different side to the footballers. Take away the money, take away the fans and everything that these players still love. They have that passion for playing, mm. the celebrations totally after. The players didn't leave the pitch by Munich. They were still there an hour, an hour and a half after. Something that I haven't seen. They were just taken in the moment of how much that meant still winning that trophy. And I think it showed people that again. So does sport need live crowds then? Is it essential? I mean, yeah, it's kind of different from sport to sport, I imagine. But for example, could you see Wimbledon without fans, Mick? I think it'd be really difficult. I think it's, it's such a part of our brand. And if you look at Wimbledon compared to most other tennis events, you know, certainly on centre court and number one court, which are two, two big stadiums, the proximity of the fans to the players it's just so close. You know, you, you hear the players talk about they can, they can almost literally touch the fans. And I think for, a, for an individual sport in particular, you get some players who thrive on fans. You know, Nadal gets so pumped up. You know, he gets, he gets the fans on his side and, and he kind of loves it. You can see the adrenaline flowing and you can just sort of see his, his tempo rise. Whereas you get other players who just love to be in their zone. So I, I think it will start to influence how, how kind of certain players play. There's been a lot of speculation about the US that you know, some of the uh, players have not quite made it. Is this their moment where, you know, again, Dokovic thrives, thrives on a crowd. He usually plays the villain, but he loves it. You know? and, I, and I think that, that just goes missing, you know, certainly when it's that kind of glad, gladiatorial individual type sport. Well, what about in Formula One, Ricardo? Having been to Grand Prix live, um, and then watching it on, on, on the telly. I feel like my experience is better watching it uh, as, as, a, as a broadcast uh, event. W- what's your take on that? Yeah, for sure, for sure bro- the broadcast uh, capability are, uh, are immense. And uh, basically, you, you have an experience that to see, and especially today, that you can also get your own camera view. I think that uh, whatever you can see from, uh, from the grandstand is just a, a small portion. I think what is missing in Formula One is all, all the collateral atmosphere, what is making the, the racing weekend. The fact mm. that, that also uh, drivers, uh, how much they pretend that they hated to be chased by, by, by supporters, this is the, the, the rhythm of their weekend. They're, mm. they're always moving, they always have people that they see, and there is this kind of need to, to, to basically be within this community that is moving around. So I feel that probably during just the race, the driver is so in his own world and basically, yes, has a very marginal influence by the crowd. But whenever he needed to feel around the weekend, I think that today living in this bubble can become pretty depressing. To me, despite all the improvements in coverage of sport, nothing, nothing ever replaces going and seeing it. And I remember every time I've seen a sport the first time, like downhill ski racing or MotoGP or whatever it is, the first time you see it in the flesh is when you, your jaw hits the floor and you just go, oh my God. And then you do enjoy it all the more than when you see it on TV. Mm. But it is amazing how in the, uh, so far, some sports, I mean, MotoGP, Formula One, I, I feel I'm watching the same thing. It's just fantastic. Whereas what, certainly the major team sports, um, football without a crowd is just, I, I actually find it quite hard to watch. Would, would, they, would they consider doing some sort of almost like hybrid audience? So you have, you know, your half capacity of physical audience 
and then do something clever technically where you have a bit of additional noise, almost like piped in from, from people's living rooms. Would that well, work? I think in many ways, I mean, because we're, we're kind of watching to see what, what works, certainly in Grand Slam tennis. So, we're, we're, you know, over the next, I guess over the next five months, we're going to see three Grand Slams very quickly. You know, the US behind closed doors, again, Roland Garros with a, with a hybrid. They're talking about 56% capacity. Mm-hmm. And the Australians, so I think, yeah, at least we get the luxury to see what people do, how it works, how the players respond to it. Um, but I think you're going to see experimentation. You've, you've got to. You know, I think people aren't just going to you know, sit on their hands and, and, and sort of you know, be negative about it. I think, I think it's an opportunity from a broadcasting perspective in particular to do something very different. What about for smaller teams, though? So you know, we're talking about you know, the, the big televised events here, but for smaller football teams, smaller rugby teams, smaller cricket teams that aren't going to have the opportunity to be televised at the moment um, and they're not going to be getting their, their their ticket receipts. They're in a bit of trouble, aren't they, Alex? Yeah, it's going to be frightening, I suppose, that ripple effect over the next couple of months. And not even just that, I think women's sport really took a back seat during the early parts of lockdown. But I suppose you can always look at the negative sides or actually in terms of me with my women's sports hat on, it's like, actually, okay, let's take a pause. What can we now do to either experiment or try and move things forward and do things differently now for the Euros, the women's Euros had to be pushed back. So it's like, okay, well, we actually have more time now. What can we mm. do certain areas to push it? So when it does come back, it's bigger and better than ever. Instead of just sitting there looking at negatives and feeling sorry for ourselves, well, this has happened. No, you use the time to make something better. What this is going to accelerate massively is that the, the lower leagues, where they're still trying to operate as professional clubs, but they their finances are parlous, to put it mildly. And the number of teams, for example, in the Football League in, in England, that are just, their, their economics are unsustainable. And I think that this is going to, there will be some sort of reset. I mean, for many years, people have said some of these teams should be part-time. They shouldn't be full-time professional teams. Uh, and the economics are not sustainable. And if, for example, the Football League is going to be financially viable going forward, they're going to have to do something about you know, a salary cap or players going part-time or whatever it is, because it's just not sustainable at the moment. Uh, it's going to be accelerated. That's pretty heartbreaking to, to hear for fans of those clubs. Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't necessarily think that a, a football club playing in a third or fourth division in the country would be less entertaining or better just because they went part time or they had a salary cap or they had to operate in a different mm. way. Um, and also, what, why should you continue to run on a loss making basis? And we don't want to see teams go bust. They they sort of almost need protecting from themselves. We've had that too often with teams. I guess we're in a bit of, bit of a schizophrenic position because, you know, whilst we run a, uh, a huge global tennis event, the vast majority of the surplus or profit that we generate then goes to the LTA for tennis in the UK. So, you know, they are, they're kind of wholly dependent on us. You know, if, if, if we take a big hit, it means they take a big hit. Um, you know, so I guess we're, we're glued at the hip on that. Andrew, do you think, just a question though, in terms of say media and TV rights and all the money that clubs get from that, do you think in terms of we're talking about players and salary caps, but do you think that will be looked at differently now as well? Uh, well, I certainly think the, the, the broadcast media landscape is going to change in every way, not least uh, rights fees. 
I mean, if you looked at um, here in the UK with, with, with what, what Sky are going to do with the Football League now, say, right, we're going to make every game available because there's no fans coming in. Now, this is going to accelerate a change. I mean, there has been a, a UEFA law which goes back to, I think, the 70s, that you don't show live football at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon because there's a window. Now, we still enforce that here in this country. But I think people are now saying, well, why should we not do that? Why should we not have games on at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon? It's nonsense. I mean, you can see Premier League games at three o'clock in other countries around the world. You just can't see them here. So I think it's definitely going to change. You're definitely going to see longer term broadcast agreements because people are going to want some sort of certainty going forward. But it's a very, very regular market and you know mix in the same space you know that you know TV deals have been limited to three or four years in the past because of competition but people are going to say now we need some financial certainty and security going forward we need to start doing longer term deals and maybe for a little bit less money is is sport too dependent on the money from broadcasting um, and if so is there any way of reversing that anyway I think for elite sport and, and, and major events, it's the guts of our income. Um, and I think that's going to continue moving in that way. But you know, at the same time, you know, you've got to find revenue in, in, through different pots. And, and uh, you know, going, back to the, going back to the earlier conversation we had about lower league football clubs or lower um, type events, it's tough for them. You know, because I think if anything, premium sports propositions may well demand more of a premium in the market. And I think the middle ground may well get squeezed even further. When I think about the development of women's sport and actually the, the um, WSL, some of the games are shown on a platform where you have to pay for it. But where does women's football or women's sport excel and that momentum builds is when it is on terrestrial TV and more eyes are on the game. So I think when we're talking about women's sport, it's different in terms of because we're still trying to grow it and what platform it needs to sit on in, in terms of money coming into the game. I think, first of all, for women's sport, it is about, OK, we need to get it out there. We need to get it seen. And I think that's where BBC have done such a great job in trying to promote women's football and women's sport in general, the whole campaign they did around last year in terms of growing the game. And I think that's where women's sport really does get its momentum and its spike. And so it's picking and choosing on what platform I think it sits on. The challenge for a lot of sports is that now... um Attracting the younger audience is a massive challenge and because they consume sport in a different way. And you can see different sports that have uh, adapted their sport because people just don't want to watch sport for as long as they used to. And, you'd, you know, cricket is the most extreme example that went from the main event being a five-day event down to being a, a T20. And certainly lots of other sports are looking at ways of making it more relevant and, and shorter. But th- I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And it's the same uh, uh, with women's sport. You've got to make sure you can attract the, the, the right audience. I mean, you know, you don't want women's football watched by an older demographic of couch potatoes. You want it to be relevant to young people and young women to make them play. What's your feeling about formats like Fast Four in, in tennis, Mick? Look, I think, I th- I think it's, a, it's a good way of, of getting a younger audience in. Um, but I still think for events like us, for, for, you know, for an event like Wimbledon, because it's kind of so special, people kind of want to watch it in its, in its form. And, you know, if you think a lot of tennis throughout the year is played in three sets for the, for the men's game. Um, yeah, you know, look at the final last year. You know, it, 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 it just delivered a huge 
audience in the UK, a huge audience globally. Yeah, you know, and you think you think of what that day was as well. You know, you had the you had the Cricket World Cup final taking place. You had the Grand Prix and Wimbledon all on the same day. Um, yeah, it was just phenomenal. And 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 you know, out of out of all those three, we had the biggest audience, um, which is great. But just two gladiators, you know, playing each other. And I think if anything, the crowd wanted to go longer, not shorter. I, mean, I was there watching live in that match. And if you remember, we'd introduced the tiebreak at, at, at uh, 12 all in the final set. Otherwise, it would have gone on. I think people were disappointed that it kind of finished. Um, so I, I think there's a place for both. We've talked a lot about the relationship between uh, broadcasters and, and, and sport. Um, I suppose that obviously brands have a massive part to play as well. That is another big revenue stream. Um, what, what can brands be doing differently in a sort of post-COVID landscape? What, what will brands have, uh, have learned from this last sort of six months, Ricardo? Well, I, I, I think that uh, they really realize that uh, now this is, this is an opportunity to change. And, uh, and probably I think that what you have seen that uh, the, the brands has been uh, either uh, proactive or reactive or, did, or they went silent because they didn't know what to do it or really they were uh, trying to surf the wave and try to be relevant. I mm. think that uh, what, what is more uh, my hope that uh, all this disruption is going to bring is really a radical shift to thinking that brands are investing in sport only for brand advertising. And really what everybody say, and I don't think it's still materialized, they really become much more community-driven. They really are going to basically bring the people together, not only through the digital tools, are going really to showcase not only brand, but the company behind it. I hope that this is going to bring uh, in this reset also probably with uh, a lower level of investment uh, that will be required by many. So the entry level will be lower uh, to see much more brands that are coming with a more clever idea, more affinity, more way to engage, uh, create communities, uh, bring new contents. One thing that, that COVID has really brought to the fore, uh, for whatever reason, is players en masse um, campaigning uh, and, and, and taking c collective action. You look at what's happening in the, in, in the NBA with, uh, with games being boycotted, the MLS, uh, uh, Naomi Osaka pulling out of uh, the uh, WTA match. This is a real moment, isn't it, where you're seeing sports people coming together for something, for something bigger and seeing a real power. Um, and, and, I, and I haven't quite been able to work out why why that is what is the confluence of events that has, has brought this about i think there's been a change in players being confident in themselves to use their platforms in different ways where i think years ago it was always don't do this don't do this kind of trying to protect people be in a certain bubble where I think players now know their role more in society and how they can influence people in positive ways. What it was Nelson Mandela, once his famous quote that, you know, sport has a way to speak to people in 
which no other language does in terms of governments, in terms of breaking down all barriers. Sport has always had the power to do that, the terms of how it brings people together, their eyes on it. And when we see players like Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling and everything going around on the world, it makes people actually look and be you're not doing it in isolation anymore. And mm. I think that's what was done previously. I think the collective in America, what's happening at the moment is just so strong. And I think players are just not scared to actually stand up and voice what they truly believe in. Because it went back to earlier when I said, you're more than just a footballer. You're more than just a sprinter. You know you know what's going on around the world. You're also educated. You have your own values and what you believe in life. So what, you shouldn't share that just because you're just a sports person? No, I think you have the platform to actually help make change happen. I think when we when we look back at history, at, at, at what's happened with COVID, I think we will have to look at it hand in hand in what has happened in all this. The George Floyd thing came at a time of sort of civil unrest because of COVID and therefore it was connected because Black Lives Matter has existed as a, as a movement and a campaign or a slogan for a, a very long time, but it did seem to accelerate it. And I'll, I'll ask Alex this one as well, because I think this is, this is flipped now um, with teams saying, right, we are not playing. And, um, uh, you know, so something, yes, you can discipline one player, you can ostracize one player, you can't chuck the team out of the league. And we've seen this, the, the, the most obvious one, example to me is what we've just seen with, you know, uh, over the last few years with, with racist, racist abuse from crowds of football teams having this endless debate about, you know, should we walk off? You know, sh- should we finish playing the game? How do you do it? And it's incredibly difficult. I, I don't know if you, what experience you've had of that, Alex, but that to me seems incredibly difficult. And I think what we're seeing with everything in America, as a team, as players coming together, you do have that power. Because when we talk about, okay, what happened in the Premier League and now every before every game they were taking a knee but it is it's always okay well what next if it's still going on and I think that's where we see the players in America and the team saying well no enough is enough we're not even going to play anymore if this continues if we don't put things in place we shouldn't be having to take this but I mean but how do you feel this is completely madness to me that the idea that it's just all about free speech and liberty and having a voice and yet somebody chooses not to take the knee and they get abused That's on both sides, because obviously within racing with Lewis Hamilton and everything, I come to the conclusion for that same thing. I was like, well, now everyone will take a knee because they don't want to be ostracized if they think that this is not me. And it should never be about that. I do think we need to find a way to put things in place, because when we're talking about from the UEFA sanctions that... When you look at, I think it was a betting thing that Nicholas Bentner that time... Yeah, yeah, yeah. his underpants. Yeah, but then he got fined this. And, but yeah, then when people were shouting racist abuse, they yeah. didn't get anything. Like yeah. they're the things, the injustices yeah. that just makes you like, really? That, that stuff is still going on. Yeah. And that's the stuff that we need to push for to make change happen. My view is that uh, Hamilton, when uh, he really say, is the time to size the opportunity, you know, in order to basically fight against the racism and inclusivity, it was just a something that... Uh, I can see like a spark or, or something that the engine needs to start from there. It cannot be alone and try to repeat and, and uh, just drag in a kind of controversial negativity. I think that uh, the good thing that I hope uh, that we turn these that uh, are controversial issue that we need to have uh, people that start to understand in a positive action. I mean, we are making the things uh, 
according to the sport. The sport is, uh, is positive, is life, is people that are enjoying. How we can turn those controversial matters in something that are a positive action? No, embrace, uh, no, getting, uh, I don't know, promotion where people that are, uh, are doing something for inclusivity are rewarded because they uh, are able to come to the sport, uh, have the chance to uh, watch uh, or to participate. Uh, and even in the motorsport, you know, if you do something, you are action-oriented, you can be invited by the team, uh, you know, be a spectator. So we, we need to, to trigger something that uh, people start to get uh, much more excited for what the, is the positive drive of do something for, instead of just always uh, looking at the controversial, I'm uh, for or against these kind of things. And, and I guess it's trying to get a balance. I, 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 think, I think Andrew's right. I think we will look back at this, this period in history and say a lot of global sports have embraced the opportunity to, to allow athletes to get their message across, to be clear whether it's kind of wearing something on shirts, take the knee or, or to comment um, and being enthusiastic that that message gets across. But where's the balance between that and then boycotting matches? And I, and I think that's, that's where the sadness would be that, you know, we're going to sort of see a, a huge then movement to, to boycotting, um, certainly at a time where I think where sports are allowing athletes and are supporting athletes to, to get this message across and, and to use use their sport, use their event as a, as a platform to get that, that message of, 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 you know, sort of clearly through. So it's, it's trying to find that equilibrium. When you talk about players and we talk about Raheem and what's going on in there, those players are not actually, they don't want to boycott, but they've had to, to accelerate a conversation, to push for change, because like you said, yes, the conversations are there, but then it carries on. There is no action. So until the, in America, then boycotting, once again, all eyes are on the sport. All eyes are on the subject. You have to then take action to make something change. So I think it's just accelerating it because I could sit here and be, I'm so tired of having this conversation. It's time and time again. It goes away. It comes back. Oh, we think we've got momentum, but then we haven't. So it's making sure that this time that there is action being taken. Looking forward, how much more technological enhancement, uh, sort of hyper-reality, if you like, are we going to be seeing in our, in our sports coverage? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't think everything works. Probably, uh, probably the most high-profile failure we've had so far, I would say, was 3D, which was trumpeted and uh, well, made me feel car sick. And I don't think, it, and, and oddly, it worked in the sports. They didn't think, you know, it was actually quite good in golf, but and basketball was but was dreadful in football and rugby. So I think I'm still of the uh, sit back generation is that I like just to somebody, some producer out there doing it for me and delivering me great coverage. However, I'm also a massive fan of the, of the second screen. Uh, in two of the one the hot topics, I think virtual reality is very interesting and incredibly clever. And but for me, sitting watching you know, with a headset looking like coming I mean, back to the future is just, is not for me just yet. I think one of the big things they still haven't cracked yet is the, is 
you know, in stadia digital experiences for people because they haven't mm. got the connectivity in stadia you know going to 5g so the idea that everybody in the stadia can be on his phone at the same time you all know when you want to send a photograph from a football match you can't well you could at the moment because there's nobody there but uh, you know when, when you're all there you're dying to send you know it's a, it's a photo of me but you can't because you can't get on connected and all the rest of it now i know there are companies working on that but i still think that's uh, there's some way to go with that i think that uh the most fascinating part is how the micro camera are able now to capture you know, very tiny elements of the sport, of the gesture of the athletes. I think there, and if I basically think about the MotoGP, now there are fascinating camera view. Amazing. Know, amazing. It's so, truly amazing. And then really, that's, I think that in the last four or five years, they, they really now bring you the spirit. You just need to have your chair that is shaking and you basically you feel that you're, you're riding the bike. Huh? Well, I'd be interested to hear from, from Alex on, on kind of data as well. I mean, I, I, I'm a massive rugby supporter. I'm a Welsh, Welsh rugby supporter. Um, you know, when you hear the commentators saying, you know, here's a, a multiple substitution coming on and, you know, the coach always changed at 60. Having more data in terms of, you know, because yeah, you, see, you see them with their... You know, with their with their sort of computer in front of them, they know exactly that player has run out of steam. You know, they've probably run ten or twelve kilometers. Their energy levels are down. I, I think introducing more of those stats. I know football do it more. You know, when you sort of see that a, a midfield has just run about twelve kilometers, and you know, there's going to be a change. I think getting people to understand more using data. Um, you know, I'd like to see more of that coming through. It must be helpful helpful for you as a as a commentator and a pundit uh, the more the more data the more information you have um, must make your job easier or, or, or more interesting yeah for me I love like it actually makes me laugh when people say oh Alex is well prepared going because I'm sitting on a pundit chair but I was well prepared as a player I wanted to know everything about my opposition I wanted to know what foot she was what does she like to do the most because I knew I was going into that game with the best opportunity to win my battle mm. and not saying I'm oh, sitting on TV is a battle but I just like to know I like to know the history of my players or what their strengths or their weaknesses are because that's what the audience need to know in terms of data that they can sit back at home because they're not in that environment and they come away and they've learned something. They have an interest in, oh, actually, what's more about sports science? I can look into that because even as a player, it's fascinating. But I think there's two sides because we had all that data, sports um, analysts um, about how much we'd run, was I in my red zone too much? But then it goes back to playing in stadiums and in front of fans and the adrenaline. So I may have run, but I've got extra in my tank because I'm running off adrenaline. So it's like, the science is there, but it's also that balance of understanding your player and that relationship. Can she give me more? Can he give me an extra 10 minutes and going on off the emotion as well? Ricardo, I wanted to ask you about um, eSports and uh, yeah, the fact that there was some very successful and, and very enjoyable uh, you know, virtual Grand Prix. Um, do, do you think that eSports uh, are a nice addition to existing live sports or potentially an alternative? I look into this uh, uh, new trend when, of course, Formula One was uh, totally in lockdown uh, and basically they ramping up uh, uh, all the e-sport coverage uh, and they try basically to surrogate or replace uh, whatever was the one. I believe that uh, 
it was a, a good alternative, a good way to also, in certain extent, cleverly showcase the attitudes and the performance of drivers in a different contest. But on the negative side, I believe that they clearly showcase the fact that there is still an immense gap between the virtual things and really what is the, let's say, uncertainty of the races and the performance of the drivers or whatever is the sport. So I think that it will be continue to be targeted for a, a very selective group of consumers, of passionate people, but strongly, I don't believe that this kind of thing is going to have a, a long-term replacement. People will not going to basically choose between a real and a virtual. I think that sometime we are going to go together, my majority will continue just to follow the, the real one. The other fascinating thing about esports is that is that people are, I mean, they're not at the moment, but uh, you know, pre-lockdown and post-lockdown, they will go to venues and watch people playing these games. You get live yeah. crowds. You can fill stadium with people watching somebody winning Call of Duty, which I think is pretty mind-boggling. And if you haven't seen it, watch Speed Cubers about the Rubik's Cubes competition on Netflix. It's unbelievable. Is it... Is it Worse than darts or better than darts? I don't know. You have I know to what see my it. view is. Well, hang on, it's now. not better than darts. Behave yourself. I love the arrows. <laughs> well, you know, but, but, was, I, but fundamentally, we'll, we'll kind of we'll kind of watch anything. Like that—that's what that that tells me. I, if I can find an angle, a sort of competitive angle, or, or or a skill that I'm impressed yeah, by, I will happily in engage with it. I still find it mind-boggling. I've been a part of an event where I had to go and play, sit there and play FIFA, and. I, I was still fascinated. I couldn't believe that I'm sitting there playing a game and people are loving watching me control some players on a TV screen. And the fact that it can sell out, what I think, was it West Ham United had the event and it sold out completely. It's hugely people, popular, yeah. Yeah, people there watching people. But so obviously there's a market and there's an interest. And I think it goes back to how TV and broadcast need to evolve. If COVID uh, means that we have to stay apart for a bit, is sport the thing that is going to be able to bring us together, Ricardo? I hope so. Uh, I still have, a, I think, a concern that uh, this will take time because this decision will be another very careful decision that government are going to basically control. Uh, I think that is the will be one of the driver of uh, pushing the fact that, that uh, social gathering will restart. I think a sport even more than other life entertainment uh, like a concert. But uh, I'm very worried that uh, will going to be still a few waves uh, of uh, uh, let's say uncertainty. And uh, you know, if I have to think about uh, you know. A big event like Wimbledon, I can just imagine how now is the concern that at least the basic conditions are back in order to restart the machine for next year. And even when today I was you know, sharing in the office whatever can be the plan of next year, I think that today we are still in such an unpredictable time. But I really hope that this will be one of the drivers to really renormalize the situation and get the people you know, much more with, of course, many measure and limitation, but at least for people who are going to return 
to a decent way to, to, to enjoy the sport. Alex, same question. I think I'm with Ricardo on that, that we still need to wait and see. We can't rush for fans to come back if it's not safe because safety is paramount first. I was that player. I loved playing in front of a crowd, totally buzzed off it. And the fans make a huge difference to any sporting arena and we need that. I'm sitting here and then I worry that obviously it has the financial implications of it going forward as well. Um, so obviously that needs to be looked at. But I think... You know, over these last couple of months, like everyone in every working environment, in our normal lives, we've had to learn to adapt. And I think we're continue to do that and find ways that, you know, if this is the way that we have to continue to watch sport at the moment, we just love that we still get the opportunity to sit on our sofa, be on Zoom calls and viewing parties and still kind of get some sort of experience. I mean, it is ironic that it's it's the broadcast and sponsorship revenues that's going to prop up sport, not the fan revenue, for the yeah. next uh, for the foreseeable future. And I think that I think the real watershed moment could be next summer if we uh, if we don't have the Olympics, if we don't have the Euros, if we don't have the Lions Tour. There's some big international events coming up, and I think that that you know Alex was there. Champions League in in Lisbon was amazing that they got that done. Uh, but it, you know, it just simply wasn't the same, and uh, and and those those big team sports, the multi-sport events, those the, those are the things they've got to find a way to get going next summer. I, I still I still can't quite countenance the idea that the Olympics might not happen next no. year, even though I know it's a no. I know it's a possibility, but I can't yeah. think about it. But I guess if you look at the look at the logistics of the Olympics, you know, you're having teams from all over the world, you're having amateur teams that are probably not well funded from countries and having to put those huge numbers into mm. a, a biometric bubble. Um, you know, it's a huge challenge. Um, big ask, big but ask. But I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm by like, like Ricardo. I mean, yeah, I think, I think for a, a, you know, a one-off event each year like us in the same venue, for us, we just got to stay agile. You know, we, we, we just got to stay flexible, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. You know, we, turn, we, we called our tournament off on April the 1st this year. You know, so we know that we can go quite long before we make that decision. But even if even if it's a, you know loss making for a short period, I'd still like us in a very safe way to get some fans in the ground. I think it's almost putting a, a flag you know, a flag mm-hmm. in the ground that you've you've actually got some people in. People are engaging, um, even if it's a, a quarter of your capacity or twenty, you know, thirty-five, forty percent of your capacity. It, yep. is, if you can do is it there a, Is there a chance, Andrew, that that actually? COVID is is the is the reset that the sports industry needed, and this could be a very positive thing in the end. Uh, I certainly think some sports will come out of this um, leaner and stronger because I think, as the same as in industry and and other uh, other companies and other places, uh, you might say airlines, for example, you're now able to make decisions that were being stopped before by unions or regulators or or third parties. But now you're just going to have to do it. You're going to say, well, this is what we are going to do. So for example, a reset on your finances. I mean, let's say, oh no, cricket's not not a great example, but it is one sport where you might say, actually, they might have a complete restructure of the sport because it's it's the right time to do it. And the economics just have not been sustainable. It's the example about smaller football clubs again. I mean, you, mm. you need to have a financial reset. And I think that may be the case. But I, whether it's going to be for the better, I don't know. Alex, could it be a positive thing? 
I see it. I'm that person that always tries to find a positive out of every negative situation anyway. So I see it. I'm, I'm hopeful. I think when you look at women's sport, women's football, there's already changes being made because they've had to. You know, it's the first time we will see over the next couple of days the women doubling up and having a community shield to try and get women's football restarted and going again. So I think in terms of women's sport, there's a lot of opportunities to, okay, we've had to push the reset button, but it's for the better. Thank you so much, uh, Alex, Mick, Andrew, and Ricardo. Uh, of course, we are uh, all living through this pandemic together. I'd love to hear from you uh, about what we've been discussing. Uh, how have you been getting your sporting fix? Have you been more active during lockdown? Uh, are you worried about grassroots sports and teams on the margins. Uh, get in touch, comment on our socials and subscribe to our channels for more episodes of Project Reset.